start of a series on miracles. So that's, that's my task, and uh, I intend to fulfill it as best I can. We're going to read some scriptures in a moment, but I'm going to ask you to envision a scene for a moment first. Imagine, if you can, that you're in the kitchen of your house. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, the man is doing the kitchen duties <coughs> that day, and he is um, unloading the dishwasher while his wife sits in a chair saying and doing nothing. The man's just putting things away. And the, he comes upon one of those odd implements that you use in your house about once every four months, and he doesn't know where it goes. And so he looks at his wife, and his wife says, it goes over there. And he says, I, thank you, but I'm going to put it there. It's a scary moment, isn't it? This can lead to months of therapy, <laughs> times like this. Unless, unless, of course, maybe something else is going on. Unless maybe somehow the man on this occasion has the right to say, no, I'm going to put it there. He actually has that right. How would that happen? Well, it could be, say, after surgery. And his wife can't do anything in the kitchen for two months, and he's Mr. Kitchen for two months, and he says, I'm going to put it there because I'll remember it. Next time, I need to use it. Then that would be okay, wouldn't it? Who thinks that would be okay in that circumstance? Yeah, okay, good. Who thinks it would otherwise not be okay? Yeah. So the question uh, comes up over and over in human experience. What gives you the right to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, or even more, you do this, you do that. That's one of the things about Jesus. He had this tremendous authority. He said, you shall do this. You shall do that. You shall not do that. And what gives him the right to say that? Well, the answer in part is demonstrated by his miracles. He speaks with authority because he also has authority to control nature itself, which proves that he is Lord. He speaks with authority because authority resides in him. And that's what we're going to learn in this linchpin passage that takes us from the Sermon on the Mount to the miracles of Jesus. Then if you would read along with me in Matthew chapter 8, 5 to 13, but I'm also going to link it to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 28 and 29 of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll do that in just a second, but just listen to me for a moment. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And just a few verses pass, four verses pass, and then we read this. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. Or it could be translated, shall I come and heal him? But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, 
in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So let's pray just for a moment. Heavenly Father, I do pray you would give us ears to hear all that you're saying to us in your word, even in this part of it, and that we would receive your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus does have authority, and he manifested that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So clearly, people said, what a, with what authority he speaks. No one speaks quite like Jesus. The crowds are amazed. Jesus doesn't quote people. He doesn't say, well, I think maybe that. Um, you know, there's an authority over here who says he just speaks. He speaks with tremendous authority, and people can't help but ask the question, where does he get the authority to speak this way? We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for some months. Where does Jesus get the right to say, truly I tell you? As if something is true just because he tells us. Where does he get the right to tell us how to live? Why does he seem to think that whatever he says is true just because he says it? Well, a Christian knows the answer. It's because he's Lord. And the Gospel of Matthew has revealed the answer from the beginning. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah. These are things that the book of Matthew tells us before he even gets started from the very beginning. But inside the story of Matthew, we get a sense of where Jesus gets his authority a second way. And that is by his miracles. And the miracles are actually a lot like his teaching in that he just speaks and it is so. Um, this is the second miracle Jesus has performed that's described in any detail at all in the Gospel of Matthew. And the one right before it is also a miracle in which he performs the miracle by a word. A, a leper comes to him and says, you know, heal me, please. And Jesus says, be healed. It's two words in English, in the Greek. It's just one word, be healed. And he's healed from that moment. The mere word of Christ heals him. And here we have Jesus healing the servant, the beloved servant of a centurion. And he's not even there. He just says, let it be so. And the servant is miles away. And when Jesus says the word, the servant is healed from that very moment. It's not just there, it's in other places. Just three verses after the end of this passage, Jesus um, heals all the sick by a word. And a few verses after that, he stills a storm by a word. He says, peace, be still. And the storm is stopped. And a few verses after that, he expels demons from somebody by a word. And a few verses after that, he heals and then forgive someone's sins by a word. All he has to do is say a word. And nature obeys. He has power over all of creation. Now, um, I don't know, you know, everybody here by any means. I can hardly even see the people in the back because of the lights in my eyes. Um, but I'm going to assume that most of you here are believers and are disciples, but some of you are not. You're you're visiting, you're checking things out. And so let me just say a word to those of you who aren't sure the Bible's reliable. And let me also say a word to those of you who have friends with whom you have dialogue about the reliability of the Bible. So one of the things that um, secular folk disagree about uh, with Christians is miracles. I mean, you know, how can you possibly believe these things 
actually happened. You, you put such stock, you Christians, in miracles, and a secular person will say, I find it incredible. Many years ago, a man named David Hume, pretty famous philosopher, said that um, reports of miracles tend to come, I'm quoting him, from ignorant and barbarous nations, from people who simply don't know any better, from people who are foolish or dupes or gullible or pre-scientific. But a scientific man, Hume says, a scientific man knows that miracle stories have to be rejected because they're impossible. Or, or say a historian, a historian has to reject all miracle stories because they're the most improbable of all events and the most improbable explanation of events has to always be rejected. So we can't ever believe a story of miracles. On the other hand, a Christian says, well, tell me how the church got started. And we have a movement, an ethical movement, by your lights, you secular person, where Jesus comes along and says this and that, and follow me and live a certain way, and then he's executed in the most ignominious possible form. Why on earth should a movement that now spans the globe and grew despite constant persecution and threats with no resources, how, how could a movement like that get started right after the execution of its leader, unless, of course, something happened. So the movement didn't die, but grew many times over. In fact, of course, we have our account of what happened, and that is the founder, Jesus, did indeed die a very shameful death, but he then rose from the dead and, and galvanized his people to go out and stake their lives to not only the message, but also the salvation of the master. I teach at a seminary, and so one of my jobs is to see what people say about the Bible and how they don't believe it as well as how they do. Um, some of the explanations people offer about miracles, you know, what really happened, because we can't believe miracles really happened. So let me tell you what happened, the, the authors say. So Jesus, you know, he walked on water uh, in the Gospels. Here's what really happened. Jesus was walking on submerged logs, and it gave the appearance that he was walking in water. Has anybody here ever tried to walk on a submerged log? <laughs> I actually have. I've tried it. It's really hard. In fact, i got to tell you, it's just about impossible to take more than one and a half steps. And then you're in. Or another one, another uh, explanation of Jesus walking in water is, you know, he was walking on a, on a sand spit. And, you know, the disciples didn't know that they were near land, and, and Jesus kind of hid from them. He was walking on the sand, which makes Jesus a deceiver and the disciples fools. And they were fishermen on their own lake. I mean, how likely is it that they would, that they would not know where the land is and where the sand is? No, it's, it's probably easier to believe that Jesus actually walked on water. And then... And then people ask the question, how can we know miracles actually occurred? Because, you know, people are so forgetful and, and, you know, memory is such a mist. And, you know, we just can't get things right. How can we trust the accounts of the miracles? And I would say it to you this way. Wouldn't you agree there are some things that have happened to you that you can't forget? That you'll remember as long as you live? If you're married, isn't it a pretty good chance you'll remember your wedding day the rest of your life? What do you think? Raise your hand if you're with me. Anybody want to disagree? birth of your first child. Now, these are things you don't forget. A number of years ago, I got a haircut yesterday, and I was uh, thinking about it, 
and uh, there was a day when I had long hair, you know, down to my shoulders. And one of those days when I had hair down to my shoulders, I was arrested by the police for killing a cop. I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, whoever killed the cop was, had long hair, and that was probably enough for them. And, you know, I remember that day. It was, uh, it was a while ago. But I remember it. I still remember it very well. I remember that the cop's hair was one quarter of an inch long. That, you know, you could take four of my hairs and it was as long as all his hair put together. I remember that. I remember that he was 6'7", 325 pounds. I remember he pulled a gun on me. And he said, don't make any sudden moves. At which point I was just convinced I was going to fall down at random and he would shoot me. <laughs> I remember that I had no ID on me, which is not a good thing. What I offered him was my calculus textbook and my organic chemistry textbook. I said, how many, how many escaped cop murderers are carrying an organic chemistry textbook with them? I didn't say it like that. I said it more respectfully. I remember detail after detail after detail after detail. And it, did, it doesn't even mean anything. It just, it's just like a, it's meaningless. But you just can't forget some things. How, do you think it's possible for the disciples to forget when they saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, when Jesus spoke with thunder of command, Lazarus, come forth. Do you think they could forget? Do you think they could mess it up? They couldn't forget it if they tried. And so the, the miracle accounts are reliable. They're the only real explanation of how the church got started. They explain how Jesus spoke with such authority, and we can be sure that they remembered. Now, I've got a picture coming up here in a second of a bunch of people and you see, one of the, one of the great things about uh, memory is that if you forget something, your friends can correct you. So my brother was with me when I was arrested by the cops. And, you know, we disagree on one or two tiny little things. I'm right, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it's so small, we're willing to compromise in the middle. The disciples were together a lot. And they told the stories of Jesus and his miracles a lot. So even if they got something a little bit wrong all by themselves, they had each other to work together to explain, and I'm not even mentioning the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe even, maybe even more important is the fact that the disciples didn't just say, I saw this, they sealed their lives for their testimony to what Jesus had done, including his miracles. Now you may say, well, you know, people will die for a lie. Uh, they do, people do die for a lie. Um, people die for a lie that they don't know is a lie. Once in a while, people will die for a lie that they do know is a lie if they gained a lot by it. But the disciples died for their testimony to Christ when it gained them nothing ever. And so we can be sure it wasn't a lie. Before they were executed for following Jesus and promoting the way of Jesus, surely one of them would have broken down and said, well, you know, we made it all up. But they didn't. They all sealed their testimony with their lies. They died for the truth. Jesus is who he says he is, and did what he says he did, that he performed the miracles and he spoke with authority, and they both flow from his lordship over all things. Now I want to look at a particular miracle for a little while, and that is the miracle of Jesus healing a centurion's servant. It took place in a town called Capernaum, which is a crossroads in Israel and where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, and um, and because it was a crossroads, because it was an important place, 
there was a Roman presence there. And if there's a Roman presence, there has to be a Roman leader, and the leader was a centurion. A centurion was uh, the captain of a group of 80 to 100 people. He was um, the one who gave orders, the one who kept discipline, and because he was in Israel, he was also in the position of the leader of the occupying army of Israel. He was, to an Israelite, rather as a Nazi captain would be in France or in the Netherlands during World War II. No one would like a centurion. He's an instrument of oppression. Nonetheless, he comes to Jesus with a problem. He says to Jesus, Lord, my servant lies ill, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Notice he says, Lord. He has some sense of who Jesus is. And even if we're disposed to dislike the man, we can or we should be able to understand the emotion. Let me tell you one thing about centurions. They weren't allowed to get married. They served in the army for 20 years, and they could not get married. They could have a concubine, sort of a, I don't know, quasi-legal woman on the side. They couldn't have children. And, of course, they couldn't fraternize with the soldiers because they exercised authority over them. And so a centurion was a very lonely man. In fact, his servant was probably his closest friend. In, in fact, the word that's used in the original for the servant is not the usual one of the usual words for servant, but it's actually a word that usually means child. That is to say, he's like a father to, and this is like a son to him, and he comes and says, Lord, my, my servant, my beloved servant, is suffering terribly. The person closest to me is in danger of death. And Jesus replies either, it can be translated either way, I'll go heal him, or shall I go and heal him? Now, you notice that the centurion never actually said, come and heal, come and help me. He, he kind of just said, my servant is terribly sick, and then let it go. You decide what you're going to do with this, you know what I mean? Have you ever done this? Have you ever um, stopped short of asking someone to help you? you? Like you describe your problem, you hope they'll say, oh, can I help? Have you done that? I do it. I do it because I'm afraid of rejection. If I come right out and say, will you please help me, they can just say, no, forget about it, and then I'm crushed. But if I just describe it, I can tell myself, well, maybe they didn't know what I was saying. And so Jesus says to him, shall I go and heal him? Do you want me to come? What are you asking of me? It's a problem we sometimes have. You know, we want the Lord to do something for us, but we're afraid to say it. We, we hesitate to come up to God in prayer in a straight ask. We pray after a church here every Sunday um, and ask God to help, to heal, to cure, to, to guide. But a lot of times... We hesitate because we're afraid of being rejected. Or, can I push even harder? Uh, sometimes we, it's not in this miracle, but we sometimes hesitate to ask God to help us because somehow our problems are important to us. And we kind of like them because, you know, they give us an identity. I'm the unemployed guy. Well, do you want a job or not? Well, it would mess with your identity as the suffering unemployed guy, wouldn't it? Or, you know, I've got some illness or disease, and somehow it's just part of who I am, and I, you know, it gives me a right to complain, and I'd hate to lose that. So what we need to do is make sure that when we pray, we ask. Jesus says, are you asking me to help? Because say it. Say it. The man actually doesn't answer 
the way we would expect. He doesn't say, yes, I want you to come to my house. What he actually says, verse 8, is I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Why would he say a thing like that? He says it maybe because uh, he knows that Jews couldn't go to the house of Gentiles without defiling themselves. So he wants to respect Jesus. But maybe it sounds like more. Maybe, maybe he means that he knows that he doesn't deserve God's grace. He, does, he knows he doesn't deserve healing. He's not an Israelite. He's not a child of, of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve, I don't deserve to ask you of this. But, it, but then he does say what he wants. He says, at the end of verse 8, he says, only say a word and my servant will be healed. Just one word is all it takes, he says. A word will be enough. How does he know that? You know, people always used to come to Jesus to be touched, didn't they? Touch me. Lay your hands on me. Come near me. But this guy knows somehow that Jesus doesn't even have to do that. How does he know? Well, he says, because I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and come, and he comes, and do this, and he does it, do that. I know that my word carries authority, and I know that your word carries authority. Why does the centurion's word carry authority? Because the centurion spoke in an unbroken chain from the emperor himself. The emperor speaks down to the generals and the senators, and it comes to me. When I talk, the centurion says it's as if the emperor himself spoke. And, you know, he has a, I don't, you know, we don't know how much he really knew about who Jesus is. He certainly has some idea, a sharp idea, that Jesus is God's unique agent on earth. I'm not saying he fully knows everything about Jesus. It would be hard for him to know that all yet. But he knows that when Jesus speaks, God himself is speaking. He has meditated on his experience in the Roman army to understand who God is and who Jesus is. That's something I commend to you. He understands that Jesus heals with a touch, but not by a touch. He heals with his hand on people, but not because his hand is on people. He heals because he is the son of God and God of very God. That's how he heals. And the centurion at least gets some of that because he has meditated properly. Again, I want to commend that to you. Um, we can learn so much about God if we pause to meditate on life. We can learn, uh, for example, if you're a parent, if you have a young child or young children, you can learn about God, the Father, by meditating on the way you take care of your children. Remember Shakespeare said that infants enter the world mewling and puking. It's one of my favorite Shakespearean phrases. I don't even know what muling is, but it, I like it. I know what puking is. They come into the world muling and puking. I think muling means making bad sounds, and then puking is bad things. And they make noise, and they make messes, and we get to clean it up, and we love them. They mule and puke, and we say, oh, my baby. They didn't even write thank you notes. They don't say thanks so much, mom, dad. Um, and in this regard, a parent's love, father, mother love, is a reflection of the love of God who loves us when we mule and puke 
and when we don't write him thank you notes. And, and he still loves, you know, parents hand food to their children and they, they feel free to just throw it on the floor at a certain age. Not when they're 11, they can't do that. But when they're 11 months, they can. And, you know, we get it. We say, okay, you know, they don't understand. And, and God gives us gifts and we throw them on the floor sometimes. And yet God loves us. He gives us grace so freely, so abundantly, we feel free to reject it, and he still loves us. And this is the kind of thing we can all learn. If we would meditate on our station in life, we would know more about God, as the centurion did. He learned about authority. Maybe you can learn about God's authority when you exercise authority. If you're in business, you're a businessman, businesswoman, and you know, you know a lot about startups, see what God did in the startup of the church and learn about God's ways like I could go on, but you get the idea. Well, Jesus uh, heard this testimony from the centurion, and the Bible says that he marveled. He marveled. He said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I, I love that Jesus marvels. Um, Jesus knows everything, right? So how could he marvel? How could he be amazed at the faith of this man? He marveled. He was delighted. He was pleased. He smiled. He said, wow, what faith. Even though as God, he knew about this man's faith perfectly well, he marveled. I, I wish we would have, I hope we have the capacity to continue to marvel. You marvel at things you know? My children live um, in St. Louis, and so I still get to, uh, we get to be together a lot, like at Christmas, and we sing together, and I, I, I will never stop marveling at the way my wife's voice blends with especially my oldest daughter's voice. It's marvelous how their voices sound so wonderful together. You think, how can you marvel? You've been hearing it for all these years. Believe me, it's marvelous, and I marvel. We should retain the capacity to marvel. And to marvel Jesus at the centurion's faith, and we should marvel at God's grace to us and God's grace to this centurion and of people like the centurion. Who's a centurion? A, a centurion is a Roman oppressor. The centurion is oppressing the people of Israel, and Jesus offers him grace and praises him. It's marvelous. How many of you are Jewish here today? Raise your hand if you're Jewish. I'm a one half to 42%, sorry, 25 to 42% Jewish, depending on what mood my father was in when he told the story of my ancestry. So I'm the only Jewish person here. Okay. One, two. Okay, we've got a couple that are Jew partially Jewish people. Um, you know, we're the only ones that have a proper right to Jesus. You know that. The rest of you are all as, as much an outsider as that, as that centurion was. You're Asians and Africans and Europeans. You're not Israelites. And yet God has offered his grace in Christ to you and to me because I'm 64% non-Jewish. It's marvelous that God offers to the nations. Jesus also marvels that the Israelites didn't have such faith. That's sad, but he says... Um, 
all, you know, he says to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the people. He will remove the sheet that covers the nations with darkness. He will swallow up death forever. And they will say, surely he is our God. Our gods, our local gods, they aren't our God. The Lord is our God. We trusted him and he will save us. Let us rejoice in his salvation. That's Isaiah. And we're the ones who receive that. We receive it, and we also offer it to others. To others, you know, you're putting up a church building, and people will come into your church building just because it's a new building. And they'll be outsiders. Some of them will be Christians who are tired of their own church and want to try something different. But a lot of them will be outsiders just checking it out. And you're going to say to them, look, you know, our God, he's really the God of Israel, but come, receive his grace. We offer it to you. And they say, well, you don't know how bad I am. I said, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know how bad you are. It's true. Uh, but God has a grace for people who are bad, who've done bad things. Receive that grace. On the other hand, those who reject it, Jesus is a strong word. Sons of the kingdom who reject my grace will be, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's actually the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the one that really lasts. Not brief weeping, but the weeping. And Jesus then switches and says to the centurion, what you've asked, I'm going to do. Go, and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Jesus healed by a mere word to this man. Now again, this is uh, someone who had no right to expect anything of Jesus, according to our understanding. There's, a, there's an interesting thing about this story, and that is it's told twice. It's told in Matthew and in Luke. And the accounts in Matthew and Luke are very similar, but there's just one difference that's pretty important, and that is over in Luke we find out that this centurion was actually a friend of Israel. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Luke tells us he was a friend of Israel, and he, he has some friends go to Jesus in advance and say, look, you should do this for this guy. Because he built a synagogue for us. What that means is he built a synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, there's a synagogue. If you go to Capernaum today, like if you got on a plane today and flew to Capernaum, you'd have to fly to Tel Aviv, but if you went to Capernaum, you would actually see, you could see the ruins of the synagogue that's talked about here. The, the lowest level, you could see it. And it's pretty big. And it means then that this centurion was very successful in war and got plunder, and instead of, instead of spending it himself, he spent it to build a synagogue. That's very impressive. And the people say to Jesus, you know, you should do this for him because he built a synagogue for us. He's worthy. But Matthew chooses not to tell us that. The man was devoted to Israel and had great good deeds that he could proclaim, he let his friends do it for him. But in Matthew, we don't read that. Matthew says, I don't care about that. I want, you to, I want you to read this man as a Gentile who has no claim on God's grace, which of course is true because no one has a claim on God's grace anyway. And so we have just a man standing in front of him, standing in front of Jesus, just a man saying, help me. I'm from the Roman oppressive army. Help me. He has no claim on God's grace. 
nor do we, nor does anybody here. Uh, one of the songs that we sing a lot in church is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And probably most of you know uh, that a man named John Newton wrote it. And probably most of you know that he somehow was involved in slave trading. I want to tell you just a little bit more about John Newton. Uh, John Newton <coughs> grew up in a Christian home. He had a Christian mother, especially, who instructed him in the faith. But he rebelled against the faith. And as a young man, he entered the Navy. And he lived a wicked life and then deserted the Navy because he thought he could make more money um, in Africa as a slave trader. He was a small player. He didn't do well at all. And like a lot of uh, corrupt things, slave trade, um, you know, it's not like people treated each other well. He was treated very badly and was beaten up and put in chains and tossed in jail. And, and he was physically ruined, and he escaped from his terrible little role in the slave trade and became a ship's mate on a merchant's vessel and he was put in charge of the ship's rum supply. Guess what's coming next? And he became so drunk that the captain uh, smacked him for being drunk on the ship. He fell overboard. He was pulled back on board before he drowned. He was tossed into the jail of the ship and uh, then there was a huge storm at sea and so they said, you're, you know, you're out of jail so you can bail so we don't go under. They really thought they were going to drown. They're bailing for all they were worth and thinking this is probably their last day on earth. And um, Newton remembered. He thought he was going to die. He remembered what his mother told him. And he repented in, in the bottom of the ship, bailing the water out of the ship. And some years later, he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, the saved a wretch like me. And it was no exaggeration. John Newton was a wretch. And God gave his grace to a wretch like him. This is the grace of God. God is crazily indiscriminate. The king, in some of Jesus' stories, invites the riffraff into his palace to have a feast. And Jesus tells stories about that because that's what actually happens in the real world. The king, God, invites the riffraff, us, into his family. He says, come on in. And we're his enemies, and he says, come. John Newton was probably the last man the people who knew him would have expected to become a devoted Christian. If he was in a high school class, they would have voted him least likely to be a good person. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Maybe you're the last person that anybody would expect to live a good life or be a child of God or be a follower of Jesus. But God's grace is indiscriminate. It goes to all kinds. It goes to John Newton. It goes to centurions. It goes to anybody who will receive it. And when you receive it, then substantial healing comes into your life. Now, the centurion wasn't sick, but his servant was. His servant was terribly sick. He was suffering terribly. Luke tells us he was on death's door. And Jesus said the word, and he was healed. And, you know, we may not be in death's door, but Jesus says the word. And we can expect not only the grace of salvation, but the ongoing grace of substantial healing in this life. You have to ask. You have to want it. You have to say, Lord, heal me. And believe you can do it. And cooperate with him. Take the steps toward healing that you can take. And here's the big idea. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He commands us 
how to live, Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is what you should do. And you know what? It's true because I say so. Truly I say to you, do this, don't do that. Think this way, live that way. Have these thoughts. And he has the right to do that because he's not just a teacher. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over all creation, heaven and earth, over people of all kinds, over animals, over inanimate objects as well. He is Lord over all. And he's good. He's Lord and he's good. He shows his goodness in his miracles that are healing, that go to people who have no claim on him, people like you and me, who have no claim, and he, and he pours good into our lives, and he says, see here the proof of my authority. It's a good, it's a loving authority. Follow me, receive me, trust me. I am your good Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would... Um, bring substantial healing and real faith into our lives, I pray that we would know you as the good and gracious and loving and kind Lord of us, of all things. We pray, we pray, Lord, for our ability to receive your grace, to trust in you, to bow to your good and loving authority, and to find life and to find healing through it. And we pray it in Jesus' name.